I would invite you to go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be, and I'll give you a little further instruction in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. I rode up today really just wrestling with the Lord about what to preach tonight. But all the way up here, and that's about a seven and a half hour drive from South Georgia, you can't get to Blackshear from here. You got to go somewhere else first. But all the way up here in my spirit, I was just praying the prayer of John the Baptist that I would decrease and Jesus would increase. Now the reason I say that is because the message I believe the Lord has laid on my heart is not some sugar stick sermon. And I would be lying to you and you preachers in the room know that I wouldn't be telling the truth if I told you that I would, I'd rather the service come to a close and you say, hallelujah, man, that was awesome. What a sermon, what a preacher. But the longer I preach and the more that I pastor, I'm preeminently concerned that we do business with Christ that Christ does business with us. I did hear the story of a, a pastor who was preaching a revival for a preacher friend of his. And when the service was over, they were out in the lobby and a little old lady came through the handshaking line and she said, Preacher, I don't mind telling you that sermon was way too long. The host pastor was embarrassed that one of his members would talk to his visiting preacher friend that way, but... The, the lady went on and the, the host pastor said, don't pay her any attention. That woman's just as mean as a junkyard dog. And by the way, every church has at least one woman that's as mean as a junkyard dog. And if you don't think Hillcrest has one sister, it might be you. Well, she got in the handshaking line, came through again, and she said, I don't know how to tell you this, but, but not only was that sermon way too long, it was way too loud. The host pastor was embarrassed that a church member would talk to the visiting preacher that way. He said, I don't like to talk about my members like this, but not only is that woman as mean as a wet hen, her elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. And by the way, may I say that every congregation has at least one member who's a few French fries short of a Happy Meal, a few bricks shy of a load. And if you think your church doesn't have one, it just might be you. Well, that lady was not deterred. She went back to the back, got to the handshaking line again and said, not only was that sermon way too long and way too loud, I don't know who tell you, that tie goes with that suit. The host pastor again was embarrassed. He said, oh, please don't pay her any attention. Not only is she one of the meanest women in this entire county, not only are the lights on, but nobody's home. Her real problem is she's a double-tongued gossip roaming the halls tonight just repeating what everybody else has been saying about you. Well, no preacher wants that kind of testimony after the service or after the week. But I will tell you, the longer that I preach and pastor, the more I realize people are the same everywhere you go. And you're cut out of the same bolt of cloth as tonight's preacher. And you're cut out of the same bolt of cloth as the people that I am privileged to pastor. I do feel at home. Thank you for that kind introduction. Hillcrest feels in many ways like a home away from home. And so uh, I'd like to do something that's a little bit dangerous. I'd like to unilaterally install myself as your pastor for the next 40 to 45 minutes. I've done that before, so let me go ahead and tell you, I'm resigning at the end of the service. <laughs> so the staff still has to visit the hospitals tomorrow. Let the church say amen. But at the Emmanuel Baptist Church on Sunday mornings, I've been preaching for over a year and a half now, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And my title of the series is simply The Supremacy of Christ. That's really what the book of Hebrews is about, that there is none higher, none better, and none greater than Jesus. And the writer uses 13 chapters in our Bible to let us know that you'll never get anyone that is superior to Jesus Christ. And nothing better for us could happen tonight than for Jesus Christ to have his way, to have his will, and to do his work in every one of our hearts and in every one of our lives, the supremacy of Christ. And we've made our way up at Emmanuel just yesterday to the message I want to lay before you 
tonight. And from the 15th verse of the 12th chapter, I want to label the message, The Burden of Bitterness. The Burden of Bitterness. If you're able and willing, may I ask you to stand to your feet to honor the public reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, absolutely authoritative, and completely sufficient book. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 simply says, looking diligently. One translation says, looking carefully or see to it. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Father in heaven, would you bless now the reading of your perfect book. And through the proclamation of this message, our individual response, our family response, our work relationship response, our church response, may it all bring much honor and glory to the one to whom all glory belongs, the lovely and precious Lord Jesus. We offer this prayer and this service in Christ's name. The people of God together said, Amen. Take your seat, please. For 11 chapters, the writer has been making much of Jesus. In the 11th chapter, sometimes called Faith's Hall of Fame, he gives a litany of saints from the Old Testament who would tell you to move on, press on, persevere, and endure in your relationship to Christ from Abel all the way to the prophets of the Old Testament, they would testify to us tonight, don't turn around, don't turn away, and don't turn back from following Christ. In light of that litany of the faithful saints, we come to the 12th chapter, and we are admonished to run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith the writer begins to compare the Christian life to the running of a race. And he warns and commands us to lay aside every weight that would hold us down and to lay aside every sin that so easily besets us. And I believe in this portion of the 12th chapter, he begins listing some of the things that will wrap the, the tentacles of hell around our feet and keep us from faithfully running the Christian race. In the 14th verse, he says, you've got to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Bottom line is, a life that is not pursuing Practical holiness will not be a life that is pleasing to the Lord. He says you need to long for a life of holiness. But now he turns our attention not to something that we need to long for, but something we need to look for. Verse 15 simply says, looking diligently. Looking carefully. Why do we need to look carefully? Lest... Any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. In my own life personally, and certainly as a pastor, I don't know any emotion that is more destructive, devastating, even deadly than the sins of unforgiveness, hard-heartedness, and bitterness. Webster's Dictionary calls it anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. God calls it sin. And through the inspired hand of this anonymous writer tells us that we are to search it out and dig it up and remove it from the soil of our hearts. Now tonight we're having a jubilee. Jubilee means a number of things according to the scriptures. It means rest. It means liberation and freedom. And while I'm not overly excited about the sermon, I'm excited about what I know God's going to do with it. Somebody in this room tonight is going to walk out of this building free for the first time in a long time. 
freed from the bondage of bitterness as God, by the preaching of his word, lifts the burden of bitterness off of our shoulders. Now, from this one verse, there are three truths I wish to lay on your heart tonight. I'll do it as briefly as I can, but I'm not coming back tomorrow night. I'm on the road to go preach somewhere else, so... Notice with me, first of all, and the outline will be on the screen, there's the root that must be examined. Just like verse 14 told us something to long for, here we're told something to look for. And the command of this text is very simple. Search it out and dig it up, looking diligently. Now, the language of that command is very instructive right off the bat. First, I note that it's a personal command. The implied subject is you. Nobody is exempt from this mandate to search our hearts for the root of unforgiveness and bitterness. You need to look diligently. It's a personal command. It's also a plural command. The language of the Greek New Testament is written in the plural. In South Georgia, we would say it like this, all y'all look diligently. Not just you individually, but each of us collectively and corporately are to look for the root of bitterness. It's a personal command, a plural command. But listen, it's a pastoral command. The underlying word in the Greek New Testament is related to the word episkopos. Bible students know that's the word that, that, that gives us the idea of a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, or a bishop that there's a pastoral function that is being commanded here. Let's put all of that together. God says to each and every one of you and to me and to all of us together, we've got a pastoral function in one another's lives. We need to join together and look for and watch out for the root of bitterness. R. Kent Hughes comments on this fact and says, we are called, I like this, to do some sanctified meddling in each other's lives. He said, we must consciously involve ourselves in the body of Christ, assuming responsibility for seeing others go on in grace and also humbly receiving their care for us. I think Dr. Hughes is spot on when he says this verse means that I've got to examine my life for bitterness. I've got to be willing to let you help examine my life for bitterness. And you've got to be willing to accept that I may do some examination if I see a root of bitterness springing up in your life as well. There's a root that must be examined. Why would we need that kind of congregational help for a commandment like this? I think there are three reasons just very practically. Number one, the root of bitterness, it is concealed. It's not the face of bitterness. It's not the plant of bitterness. It's not the tree of bitterness. Hey, it's not the forest of bitterness. It's the root of bitterness. Weighed down in the soil of the human heart. Bitterness has been defined as a harbored hurt hidden in the heart. And just like a plant bears seed down deep in the soil. You don't see it until it bursts forth as this verse promises us that it will. It is often unseen by the human eye, but it is nonetheless very, very real. And you can look great on the outside. You can for a while conceal the root of bitterness with a suit and a tie Ladies with a dress or a skirt. I said ladies with a dress or a skirt. You got to be clear these days. You can hide it behind a choir robe, a Sunday school lectern. You can hide it behind stained glass vocal cords. Hallelujah. Because the root of bitterness is concealed. So much so that oftentimes bitterness is last seen by the person who has it. We need help with this matter. Just like broccoli in your teeth or toilet paper attached to your shoe when you're coming out of a public bathroom or bad breath. I mean, when somebody hands you a mint and says, here, please don't save it. 
bitterness will conceal itself. Not only do we need this kind of help because bitterness is concealed, it's camouflaged. What I mean by that is I don't know any sins in my life. I'm just bearing my soul to you tonight. I don't know any sins in my life that disguise themselves and camouflage themselves like bitterness does. I mean, it doesn't just hide, but when you finally see it, it tries to pretend that it's something else. When I was in college, in undergraduate school, one day every computer in the whole department at the university was stolen and stolen in broad daylight. How in the world did that happen? Well, a couple of guys pulled up to the front door and they had either stolen or somehow fabricated some maintenance shirts from the IT department of the large state university I was attending and this was long before stuff was uh, stored up in the cloud, so to speak. They said, we're here to do updates on all of the computers and the staff helped them carry the stuff out to their car. <laughs> they disguised themselves as something legitimate to rob the place blind and that is exactly what bitterness often does. Like a spiritual chameleon, it will take on the shape and the look and the texture of something that's even godly. Righteous and holy in my own soul. Bitterness has camouflaged itself as righteous anger. Righteous indignation. By the way, the Bible does teach that there is a holy anger. There is a righteous indignation, but most likely you don't have any of it. Bitterness will disguise itself as standing for that which is right. Bitterness will make itself look like a righteous posture. That this person has violated the word of God and I'm standing on the word of God. No, you're not. You're bitter as bitter can be. And like all acts of the devil, bitterness brings some of its own Bible verses with it to help its disguise. Someone says, I know, Lord. You said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Vengeance is yours, Lord. And I'm just here as a willing vessel and a, and a willing servant. Use me in the ministry of vengeance. We would all do well to pray the prayer of King David in Psalm 139. Where beginning in verse 23, he said, search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be a wicked way in me. By the way, may I just insert that the devil has no interest in getting you to remove bitterness in your heart against another person. So if somebody's already come to your mind, and let's be honest, somebody's already come to your mind. That's the Holy Spirit of God already saying, this is the situation the preacher came from Georgia to talk to you about tonight. There's a root that must be examined because it's concealed, it's camouflaged. Thirdly, it's corrupt. The Bible calls it a root of bitterness. And may I simply say that bitterness is not a personality trait. You say, well, this is just how my grandma was. It's not a personality trait. It's a spiritual disease. It's a biblical matter. It's a spiritual matter. To be sure, it may have started between you and some other person. It may have been initiated in the horizontal realm. But if you don't deal with it in the presence of God with the help of the Holy Ghost... It won't take very long before that situation in the horizontal realm gets vertical real, real quick. You say, well, it's just my red head from my Irish bloodline. No, it's our black heart from our Adamic bloodline. It's a matter of sin. It's corrupt. In your Bible in Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 30, you may note this on the screen the scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Did you know there are some things that we can do 
that would quench the power of the Holy Ghost in our life, that would grieve and even offend the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a thing. He's a person. And according to the Bible, he's got feelings, and those feelings can be offended, and his own spirit can be grieved. What in this day and hour, we might ask, would grieve the Spirit of God? Somebody might say, I know what it is. It's the LGBTQIA plus movement, and I think that would work. Someone else might say, I know what it is. It's the baby-killing abortionist, and I would say, amen. But when the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration, lists the things that grieve the Spirit of God, the first thing in the list is bitterness. And he tells us in the text, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. There's a root that must be examined I've taught my church on a regular basis that bitterness usually comes from one of three things. I mean, just about anything you can be upset about will fit into one of these three categories. A statement spoken, a thing taken, a deed done. Something somebody said, something somebody did, something somebody took. Or maybe it's something they didn't do that you thought they should have. Something they didn't say that you thought ought to have been said. Or maybe something they they did not take you thought they should have taken off of your plate. This room is large enough tonight. Someone in here is bitter toward God. God allowed some death, some difficulty, some disease in your life or the life of someone that you love. And by the way, may I say that being mad at God, raising your fist toward heaven will do about as much good as yelling at the Smoky Mountains. All it's going to do is wear you out, not going to change a blessed thing. Some of you are bitter toward a former friend, a boss who unjustly fired you, a friend that betrayed you, a colleague who nearly ruined the business, a business partner that lied about you. I will tell you, I know personally what it's like to be bitter toward a family member. I don't wish to make light of this at all. Heaven knows I don't want to make light of this, but maybe you were physically abused, emotionally abused, and God forbid, sexually abused. Some of you are bitter toward a dad who never spent time with you. A mom, perhaps, who left your dad and your siblings because she ran off with another man, a spouse who betrayed you. I'm talking about somebody in this room tonight that is still angry with an ex-husband or an ex-wife. Perhaps you're angry with a child who's living in rebellion and their rebellion you think has ruined your family. Maybe it's a sibling that robbed you blind when your mother or your father died. Let's be honest. Mama only had a used single-wide trailer on a quarter acre of rented land, but you'd have thought it was the Taj Mahal when your sibling was executing the will. And the seed of bitterness can get planted down in the human heart. Now, when I work in my yard, I'll tell you, I've never intentionally sprayed Roundup or any weed killer on a weed until three things were true. Number one, I had to recognize that it was a weed. I had to identify it. Secondly, I had to know that the root went deep enough that it made more sense to spray it with expensive Roundup than to just reach over and pluck the thing up. Thirdly, I had to know that it was going to do damage to the soil of my yard if I left it alone. Tonight, there's a root that must be examined. Number two, there's a ruin that should be expected. Here the Bible says that if we leave this root of bitterness untouched and undealt with, that root of bitterness is going to spring up It's going to trouble you and it will also defile many others. 
Adrian Rogers once said that a bitter person is sort of like a porcupine. They may have some good points, but you don't want to be around them and get too close. If you leave the root of bitterness alone, it will eventually spring up and it will cause damage. It will yield a poisonous tree that will produce poisonous fruit and that poisonous fruit will fall to the ground with poisonous seeds that will again multiply and you'll have a forest of bitterness that will tear your life absolutely apart. And if you say that won't happen to me, then you don't understand bitterness and you don't understand your Bible. For the Bible says it will spring up and it will cause trouble. Richard Phillips in his commentary notes that bitterness defiles and stains when it spreads. And the point is, it always spreads. Bitterness is like the kudzu of the soul. Leave a little bit of it alone and it will flat take over. In fact, God warned Israel about this root of bitterness. In Deuteronomy 29, beginning the 18th verse, be sure there's no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now watch this warning. When someone hears the words of this oath, he, he may consider himself exempt. God knows that somebody here tonight was going to hear this warning and think, I'm exempt from that. He's going to say in his heart, I'm going to have peace even though I'm going to follow my own stubborn heart. Preacher, I'm going to do what I want to do. I've had people sit in my office and tell me straight to my face, I cannot and I will not forgive. I can't make you forgive, but I can promise you on the authority of God's Word, ruin should be expected. How does this ruin show up? Three simple ways. Number one, it will saturate your mind. I mean, it'll just take over. A moment ago, I said bitterness is the kudzu of the soul. You may consider it as the dandelions of the soul. You ever had dandelions in your yard? You go out there with a lawnmower thinking you're taking them down? No, you just turn your lawnmower into a broadcast spreader and you made the situation a whole lot worse. It will saturate the mind some years ago, I was attending a state Baptist convention. And I saw one of my best friends that was there, and we ran into a third pastor. And that third pastor, he and I had gotten sideways. How many of you preachers know you can get sideways with preachers just like any other profession? And I got back to my hotel room that night, and my best friend in the ministry called me. It was about midnight. He knew I'd still be up. I'm a night owl. He said, I want to talk to you about something. I said, what? He said, I want to talk to you about Dr. So-and-so. And he named that other preacher. I said, that'd be wonderful. I'd love to talk about Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> and he lovingly, graciously, rightly said, that's what I want to talk to you about. And I said, I'm not bitter. By the way, that's the first sign of a bitter person. I'm not bitter. <laughs> he said, yes, you are. I said, all right, you've, you've earned the right to speak into my life. Why do you think that I'm bitter toward that man? He says, because you talk about him all the time. You don't fellowship with him enough for his name to be in every conversation. Your paths don't cross one another enough. He lives about four hours away from you. You don't have enough connection with him that his name keeps coming up again and again and again and again. I've known some ladies in my life that if you want to see them mad, mention the name of their ex-husband. And you'll find out the bitterness has been right there underneath the surface the entire time. Oftentimes, one of the problems with somebody who's bitter is they say, they've moved on, preacher. My ex-husband has moved on. He's left me here with the ruins of this family. I've got these kids to take care of. He won't pay alimony. He won't pay child support. Or that business partner has moved on to, to greener pasture and they've left me here with a mess. They've moved on and they've moved on and they've moved on. They're not even thinking about me anymore. That's exactly right. 
So why are you thinking about them all the time? Bitterness will saturate your mind. Years ago, a Christian medical doctor by the name of S.I. Macmillan wrote a book called None of These Diseases. He writes about this very truth and says that the moment I start hating a man, I become his slave. I can't enjoy my work anymore because he even controls my thoughts. My resentments produce too many stress hormones in my body and I become fatigued after only a few hours of work. The man I hate hounds me wherever I go. I can't escape his tyrannical grasp on my mind. The man I hate may be many miles from my bedroom, but more cruelly than any slave driver, he whips my thoughts into such a frenzy that my inner spring mattress becomes a rack of torture. The lowliest of servants can sleep, but not I. I really must acknowledge the fact that I am a slave to every man on whom I pour the vial of my wrath. In Ephesians 4, as Paul speaks about sinful anger, he, he says there that if we don't deal with it, we're giving place to the devil. We're giving an opportunity to the devil. We're giving a foothold to the devil. That word in Ephesians 4 literally means legal right to be somewhere. That is, we try to evict the devil from the back room of our heart, not realizing that with the pen of bitterness, we signed a lease agreement. He has legal, spiritual right to stay there, and he's never going to be evicted until we kick him out with the eviction notice of forgiveness. But in the meantime, bitterness will saturate your mind. Secondly, bitterness will sicken your body. Our text says that the root of bitterness will spring up and cause trouble. Bitterness has been defined as a tumor that will eat you from the inside out. Someone said bitterness is an acid that eats its own container. My favorite definition is that harboring bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Sir, could you imagine going out to your shop, finding that bottle of concentrated Roundup, popping the top, turning it up, draining it dry, and then speaking the name of the person you're mad at, drink all that poison and say, there. That's what happens when we harbor unforgiveness and bitterness. Preacher, do you think that every sick person is bitter? No, but every bitter person will be sick sooner or later. Dr. Macmillan in the book that I referenced earlier lists as many as 50 different diseases that he thinks are primarily caused by spiritual issues. And the list of physical problems caused by things like bitterness include heart disease, high blood pressure, gastrointestinal problems, colorectal problems, and the most polite way I can say this, even marital dysfunction. It could very well be that someone in this room tonight, you are sick, but you don't need a pharmacist. You need an altar. Hear me. I am not saying that everyone that is physically sick is because of sin in their life. I'm saying it might be that what you need instead of a prescription is to find you a place and get before God and say, Spirit of the living God, I cannot forgive, but you by your power can forgive through me. Use my mind to forgive them. Use my mouth to forgive them. Use my body to carry the message of forgiveness. It will sicken your body. Proverbs 14, 30 says that a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body, but envy is like cancer in the bones. You say, preacher, do you think a bitter person can go to heaven? Yeah, and you might get there a few years before you otherwise would have. It will just flat sicken your body. Bitterness will saturate your mind. Thirdly, bitterness will sour your spirit. You ever heard that expression, birds of a feather flock together? The same is true with bitterness. Nobody wants to be around a bitter person except other bitter people. 
It's like a disease, and unless you've already had it and been kind of naturally vaccinated to it, you don't want to be around them. When you see that bitter person in Walmart, you do the Walmart duck on aisle seven. <laughs> Get on your phone, act like you're talking to somebody. You don't want to be with them. Why? Because they got a sour spirit. I heard about a lady who went to the doctor. She had some very unusual symptoms. The doctor said, ma'am, have, have you been around any raccoons or crazy foxes? Have you, have you been playing with some mad dogs? She said, no, why? He said, I don't know how to tell you, but you've got rabies. She pulled out a piece of paper and a pen and started feverishly writing. He said, oh, ma'am, you don't have to make out your will. There's a cure for this. She said, no, I'm making a list of the people I want to bite before I get cured. You say, I don't want to bite anybody. You don't have to want to. Listen to me. You just will. A bitter person hurts themselves, but they hurt more than just themselves. Why is that? It's because bitterness is something described here as a root of bitterness. It's down in the heart. Watch this. You need to, you need to watch this. If you've tuned out, tune back in. Bitterness is not something that exists between me and you. Bitterness may have started between us, but now it is rooted down on the inside of me. And when you've got something rooted down on the inside of you, the problem is you can't get away from it because you are everywhere you go. And that person with whom you are offended, they travel with you now everywhere you go as well. They're on vacation with you. You don't even want to talk to them, but they're on vacation with you. You get out on a bass boat in the middle of the lake and there they are. It's deer season and you get in that one man ladder, uh, a climber, you go all the way up that pine tree by yourself and it may as well be a two-seat buddy stand because that joker's right there with you. Saturating your mind, sickening your body, souring your spirit. And I believe the worst part of bitterness effect is what it does in our relationship with God. It hinders every relationship that we have. This is why you're short with your wife and she hadn't done anything to you but brought you coffee. This is why you're so mean to your kids. They hadn't done anything to you. This is why you're a cantankerous person at the workplace because that root of bitterness is down in the heart and you're carrying it with you everywhere that you go. But I believe the most dangerous and damaging place that we could carry the root of bitterness is to our own altar of prayer. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, after Jesus gave the model prayer, we often call the Lord's Prayer, I want you to notice something that he said in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I know this is not popular preaching, but you may find yourself at an altar of confession. You've said something you shouldn't have said, done something you ought not to have done, and you say, Lord Jesus, would you please forgive me for what I did only for the Lord to say, no. At least not until you forgive that other person. I carry seriously the weight of preaching the Word of God. And I would never tell you that Jesus will not forgive your sin. But I will tell you that Jesus said the Father in heaven will not forgive your sin if you don't forgive those who have sinned against you. God has knit us together body, soul, and spirit. And bitterness ruins all three. 
I know a lot of churches, a lot of families, a lot of Christians who could benefit from a good case of amnesia to just let it go, give it over to God, and move on for His glory. The root that must be examined, the ruin that should be expected. But I've got good news. I want to end the message here with the remedy that can be experienced. You see, you don't have to live a life of bitterness because while the root of bitterness may be difficult to remove and for you and for me, impossible to remove, aren't you grateful that things that are impossible with men are still possible with God? There's a remedy, and the remedy is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I told you at the beginning, this whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. That there's, there's nobody better, higher, greater than Jesus, and Jesus is the remedy for the root of bitterness. What do you mean, preacher? Well, I want to share with you in conclusion three things that you can and should do if you need to deal tonight with the root of bitterness. Number one, remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. How do I get rid of this root of bitterness? Well, I think the answer to that is recognizing its cause. What caused the root of bitterness to start with? The answer is in our text. Notice in verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. One translation says, don't fall short of the grace of God. That word fail or fall short literally means to be in want or to be in lack, to not have enough. Jesus used this same word in Luke 15. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Left his daddy, went into the far countries, in the pig pen, wants to eat the husk that the swine did eat. No man gave to him. And the Bible says, and he began to be in want. And that's this same word. It just simply means to come up short. A simple analogy would be this. Imagine that you've given your children hundreds and hundreds of dollars. You say, preacher, that's not an imagination, that's a memory. <laughs> and you ask them if you could borrow a dollar for something you need. And they say, I don't have any. The Bible says the cause of this root of bitterness is God has given you so much grace. But yet when somebody enters your life and needs some grace from you, I'd give you some, but I don't have any to spare. The key is to realize, brothers and sisters, you and I have been forgiven much. Amen. The enduring word commentary notes that this phrase, falls short of the grace of God, might also be translated failing to keep up with the grace of God. The idea here is that the grace of God is moving on past the pain and the hurt of the past, and we should move on also. Remember the picture here is of running the Christian race and you'd better stay side by side with the grace of God. The grace of God is moving on. The grace of God is moving on around the world for the glory of God and you and I had better be sure that we don't get too far behind the grace of God so that when somebody needs some grace and mercy and forgiveness from us that we don't have any to give. The warning is simple. Don't be lacking in grace. This is the subject of one of our Lord's parables in Matthew 18. Do you remember what happened? There was a servant who owed the master a fortune. Couldn't pay for it in a hundred lifetimes. And he came and he asked for the forgiveness of the debt and the master forgave his debt. And the servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him just a few bucks and grabbed him by the shirt collar began to beat him and said, you pay me the money you owe me right now or I'm going to have you thrown in debtor's prison. And sweet little Jesus boy said in Matthew 18, 32, 
you wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Beloved, I don't mean to glorify sin tonight, but I will tell you this. I have sinned enough in my life that I can never withhold. I'll never withhold forgiveness from someone else. In fact, the smallest solitary sin committed by one of us against a thrice holy God is vastly worse than if you sinned against me a million lifetimes over every day, all day long. And yet God in his mercy and grace forgives us through the blood of his cross. On the back door of my study where I prepare sermons, I have a sign as a question on it that says, where's the cross? It's a reminder to me that my sermon isn't finished. No matter what the topic may be, no matter what the text may be, Brother Glenn, my sermon's not done until I've gotten to Calvary. And tonight I just want to show you the supremacy of Christ. He is our mandate and our model. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If you think you cannot forgive that person, travel with me to the city of Jerusalem outside the city gates and go with me up a skull-shaped mountain to a blood-spattered place called Calvary. Watch her Lord there be nailed to a criminal's cross. Watch him suffer and bleed in agony, his body hanging in ribbons of flesh. Listen to him as he spits out enough blood to say something. I bet he's going to get him now. Oh no, he cries out, Father! Forgive them. They know not what they do. The Bible says you and I are to forgive one another like that. It was Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, who said, let us go to Calvary to learn we can be forgiven. May I pause for a moment and ask you, have you been to Calvary to know that you've been forgiven? In this room tonight, watching by live stream, if you have never experienced the forgiveness of sin, I've come with good news tonight. You're not a better sinner than Jesus is a Savior. No matter what you have done, if you will ask Him and call on Him by grace through faith, Jesus Christ will wash all of your sins away. And he'll write, forgiven over your sin account, paid in full by my own blood. Somebody ought to say amen. So how can I forgive someone else? Number one, remember God's grace. Number two, request God's goodness. I simply mean to pray for them. It's hard to pray for somebody and hate them at the same time. And I don't mean what theologians call an imprecatory prayer. God, may all their kids be born naked. No, I mean a real nice prayer. (laughs) Preacher, I don't want to pray for them. I'm mad at them. I know that's why you need to pray for them. Rather than letting your anger and bitterness prevent you from praying, let your prayers prevent the bitterness and the anger. It's hard to pray for somebody and pour the vile wrath of your soul upon them. But but, but when you pray for them, you will find the burden of that bitterness begin to be lifted. You say, I don't want to pray for them. I don't even think they're saved. All the more reason to pray for them. To pray that they'll come to know Jesus. I don't want to try to be the hero of my own illustration, but I will tell you this. In the last several years, including driving here tonight, I'm reminded of plenty of preachers. It'd be real easy for me to have all against. And nothing, but nothing has helped me more than praying that God would bless them. To have their name in my phone. 
to get up on Sunday morning or go to bed on Saturday night and say, oh Jesus, whatever they're preaching tomorrow, would you use them? Flow through them, Lord. And God, I pray that you would protect them and their testimony and their reputation because they wear your name. And for the glory of Christ, may nothing ever happen to them that would bring reproach to you, Lord Jesus. Bless them, bless them, bless them. And I'm telling you, it is an antidote for bitterness of the soul. Remember God's grace. Request God's goodness. Finally, reflect God's gospel. You ought to simply ask yourself, how how can I respond in this situation that would be the clearest picture to an onlooking world? That before the foundation of the world, a God who knows me better than I knew myself knew that I was going to be dead in my sin and in need of a Savior. And he took on flesh and blood and came into this sin-cursed world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and three days later got up from the dead and said, if you will repent and believe my gospel, I will forgive and save you. To say, Lord, I want you to put me in a position to where people who know about this situation may see me talking nicely to them, treating them kindly, or speaking of them with grace. And then they ask me, how in the world are you treating them that way after the way that they have done you? That I would then have an open door and a perfect opportunity to share the wonderful love of Jesus Christ. That I want the way that I'm dealing with this situation to reflect the gospel of God. I love the story that is told in the days after the Civil War. It is said that General Robert E. Lee was sitting with an elderly southern lady on the front porch of what used to be a beautiful southern mansion. But part of Sherman's march to the sea had destroyed that beautiful farm. Cannonball and artillery had turned that beautiful home place into a tattered reminder of what it used to be. Off the porch of that house were the tattered remains of what used to be a majestic oak tree. General Lee, said the lady, you see that tree? My daughters and granddaughters got married under the shade of that tree. For years we had family reunions under the shade of that tree. We had Sunday lunch under the shade of that tree. Look at it now, look at it. Generally, every time I look at that tree, I get so angry. What am I going to do about that tree? And he simply said, Madam, cut it down. I really do believe I drove from Blackshear, Georgia tonight to encourage somebody to take the chainsaw of God's grace and forgiveness and cut down the tree. 